The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. You end up so empty and so lost and lonely is not even a word. I mean, there's so many words, other words that I can use, but I'm just glad that I can talk about it. Hello, Mad World listeners. Bryony Gordon here. I wanted to pop into your headphones and share an episode of my new podcast. It's called If I Can Do It. And if you like the kind of candid, no holds barred conversations we had here on Mad World, I think you're going to like this too. In each episode of If I Can Do It, I talk to a personal hero of mine from the worlds of TV, Hollywood, social media and beyond, all of whom have overcome huge personal obstacles on their path to success. We get deep into the nitty gritty of things, what was holding them back, what they did to get over it, what advice they'd give to other people. I loved recording these conversations because I know that we can all use a bit of help and inspiration when it comes to feeling better about ourselves, especially in January. And I'm so happy to be able to share our first episode with you here, featuring a really candid, honest conversation with one of the bravest women I know. It's the queen of spice herself, Mel B. But before we roll the interview, a polite warning. This conversation contains discussion of adult themes and occasional strong language, and it isn't suitable for younger listeners. I'm just going to start chatting. Go for it. So the first guest on this podcast, if I can do it, (laughs) which is a podcast about doing the thing that you thought you couldn't do. Yeah. So it's about achieving incredible things against all the odds. Yeah story of my life <laughs> it's mel b everyone so we do like a there's a lot of people in this room oh my god it sounds like we've got a studio audience but just to set the scene we are in a lovely house in south london my friend's house louise who helped me write the book louise who helped you write the book and it's we're on a nice sofa there's a christmas tree we've got cups a, of tea we've got cups of tea there's a fire there's flowers yeah. there's pajamas there's dogs this dogs, I hope they stay quiet. If, if there's any barking during the, during the making of this podcast, it's from the dogs. Yeah. But we are here to talk about your new book, Brutally Honest, which yeah. it sort of does what it says on the tin, doesn't it? Completely. It's very honest and very brutal, some parts. At the centre of this book, I mean, reading it, I was like, this is quite extraordinary. It's not just like another celebrity memoir mm-hmm. where you sort of just rattle out a list of anecdotes of all the famous people you've hung out with and your mm-hmm. fabulous life and <laughs> private jets and all of that jazz, which you, you often get, do you know yeah. what I mean? Which is like publishing companies are like, here's a load of money, just write something. It'll fly off the shelves at Christmas time and, you know, and that funds our publishing house for the rest of the year, basically. Yeah. But this is like... I mean, it's really shocking and I found it really relatable. You know, I think there's a lot of women and perhaps men that will find it really relatable because at the heart of it is an abusive relationship with your ex-husband. Yeah. And you really don't leave anything out. What was, it's obviously, I mean, we were talking about this before we started doing the podcast. I'm going to let you talk in a moment. No, go on. No, I like listening to you. Go on. But I also like how the producer was like, please, can we keep it to half an hour? And I'm like, good luck with that. We've got Scary Spice and me. We'll be here five hours later. Um, It's obviously a really hard book to do. It is. And there was many times writing the book and even just reviewing the chapters that I was like, no, 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 I can't do this. I can't, I just, I can't read another word of what happened to me and how it happened. And I can't 
talk about the things that I still feel somewhat guilty about and ashamed about. And then I, I had a click of, you know, I have to do this because it's really therapeutic. Mm. And hopefully, well, I do now know that there's, be, there's lots of people that have gone through this and it is a taboo thing that you don't talk about because it's too embarrassing. You know, when you're in an abusive relationship and you're trapped in that relationship, um, it's really scary and you're just glad to get out. So when you're out, you don't really want to talk about it anymore. Mm. And especially in my case, I suffered a lot from PTSD, so I blocked a lot of it out Mm -hmm. what had actually happened to me and my really good friend Louise who's an amazing writer she helped me piece back the the puzzle together by interviewing and talking to my friends and my family because when you're in this kind of relationship it doesn't just affect you it affects your kids Mm. your friends your parents so it was it was an an interesting journey writing it because some of the stuff I'd forgotten some of the stuff I was still in denial about Mm -hmm. so it was nice to have other people's opinions and other people that had witness stuff and that's all in the book which then brings me on to the point which is really important that this book isn't a he said she said Mm. it's all factual and it's things that have actually happened to me not just from my point of view but from other people's point of view that were were actually witness to him being so abusive to me so because I mean we should start you know Stephen well his real name now I know is Steve Stansbury Steve Stansbury, but, but he called himself Stefan Belafonte. Okay, which was the surname surname of uh, famous thing, jazz, Harry yeah. Belafonte. Yeah. So he obviously has come out and is saying it's you know he's saying it's lies and. But that's what an abuse an abusive person. Well, this does. is the thing. I mean, I've been reading on the like you know on gossip websites and stuff, and it seems to me that there's that layer of kind of abuse that goes on Still. when you're in one of these relationships, and even when you're out of it. Yeah, that obviously then it's like, I'm going to try and undermine you and dismiss everything you've said. Yeah. So you're always doubting yourself. Yeah, but I don't have as much doubt as I did when I was in my marriage because, you know, when you're in the kind of situation that I was in, which many women are now or have been or they're privy to it now, um, you're you're living a lie. So I would get up, take the kids to school or get up and go work on X Factor or America's Got Talent Mm -hmm. film and my work became my saviour actually in many ways. And then maybe that would be a few hours or 10 hours and then that thought would just dawn over me. Oh my God, I've got to go home and I don't know what I'm going to go home to. It's definitely going to be emotional and that's what I I lived in every single day and it's almost almost got to the fact where I thought I was going a bit mad because Mm. I knew it was wrong and it felt wrong what was happening and yet I couldn't get out and I I know people are probably thinking that are listening to this why didn't you just get up and leave well I had a family I had I was the only breadwinner because he never really worked a day in his life so Mm -hmm. I was paying the bills and keeping everyone safe with a roof over their head so it wasn't it's never just easy to just get up and walk out and they capture you and they but in my in in my situation I got blackmailed with a lot of videotapes so if I did leave there was a risk that these videotapes were then going to be released and my career was going to be over this one thing he would say on repeat to me well this is okay so this is the thing and I'm just going to qualify here that I my first ever relationship was with someone very abusive only occasionally was he physically abusive Right. But he was very emotionally abusive and it made me feel and all the things so you're talking about, you know, you being blackmailed with sex tapes and I found that I found this really interesting because 
again, it's like, oh, I should feel this shame, you know, yeah. because you're quite, you're quite unabashed about the fact you like sex. And, that, and really in the year 2018, that shouldn't be a thing, you know, but women who are painted. So it's like using your qualities and your sort of feelings and things you should be perfectly entitled to express in a healthy, consensual way. Yeah, but some of those against you tips I wasn't even aware of. I didn't even know that he was filming. And some of them, I did know he was filming, but I never thought for one second, was anybody else going to see it? But I didn't even want to watch any of them back, even though I was in all of them. So, but let, let's go like way back to the beginning. Yeah. Because I think you, what you're alluding to there is that that thing of like, well, why didn't you leave? But also your persona, yeah. you know, you're Scary Spice. Yeah. You've been Scary Spice since you were like, what? 18, 19. I think way before that too, yeah. Yeah, like you have been put in this tick box, you know, like you guys had your, you know, baby spice, posh spice, and, you know, and that was something that you very much had to kind of fulfill and well yeah it was me it still is me yeah and you and it is you but of course we're all like we're not all just one thing Mm -hmm. we're all a lot of things Mm -hmm. and what I picked up from the book was that when Stefan sorry or Stefan Steve Steve um and I'm gonna I'm gonna put it this way and we we probably have to get this legal but in a way targeted you because you've met him before but you were in a really vulnerable place so you were eight months pregnant well I'd had Angel yeah from a past relationship with Eddie Murphy and that's when we started I guess if you want to call it dating but these kind of relationships you don't find them they find you they sniff you out like a sniffer dog when you're at your most vulnerable and they sweep in like Prince Charming with everything that you think that you need and Mm. they appear to be strong and sensitive and respectful and honest and loving and caring and they couldn't be further from the truth but you don't see that straight away Mm. you know they slowly start to reveal themselves in a very controlling way to you and by that point it's either too late or they've already got your car keys so you're not driving anymore but Mm. they do it in a way where it's all it all appears to be them taking care of you no you need me in your life kind of thing and then you know it's it's almost like they go through different steps okay I'm going to be really nice to her today then I'm going to be really verbally abusive to her tomorrow then I'm going to comfort her the next day and then I'm going to make her feel really embarrassed the next day it's like almost a pattern that they go through and now looking back it was a definite pattern and a definite target where he just came for me and I didn't even realize it and a lot of these women don't realize it I mean because you were yeah so you'd just given birth and you were like completely in love with Eddie Murphy yeah and I kind of get sense that in a way there's still you still sort of you know see him as the, the one yeah. and well but he is in a very loving committed relationship no, with Paige and yeah. his, <laughs> they're about to have their second baby together but I'm glad that I I now I know properly what a loving caring respectful relationship is because that's exactly what he we were with each other mm-hmm. but that ended very suddenly yeah and then you were left in a sort of you know you were in a really vulnerable place yeah I was in a baby days place because <laughs> I just had a baby my second baby and my relationship had kind of not fallen apart we just the communication was just completely off and completely wrong it was on a, in, a, in a different phase which was really heart-wrenching to me but life goes on and I had to get on I had I already had my daughter Phoenix from my previous marriage and then I had this newborn baby that I wanted to make sure was looked after and cared for which she wasn't is and then you're married how quickly did you get married is it two months yeah it was a couple of months after I'd well it was about three months after I'd given 
You're, you're, you're really honest in the book. It was like Vegas, kind of, you've been drinking yeah. vodka. I wasn't drinking until after I got married. Okay. So on the plane ride, it all it's almost like I didn't even really understand what was happening, but of course I did. It was like, let's go to Vegas today, let's get married. Oh, okay, let's do that then. <laughs> and then it just happened. So what, I mean, so let's talk a bit more about that kind of like, I always think that relationships and the relationships that when I say you have, I mean, we have mm-hmm. as humans are often really good reflections of our mental health at the time. Mm-hmm. And I say that as I now think I would never, ever, ever, I would never allow the man I let into my life at the age of 19 into my life now. But mm-hmm. then and he's still all these years later, like I, I, my husband like morphs into him in a dream and still has the power. And actually mm. I find it really difficult to like, this is probably the first, well, it's the first time I've spoken about it, like on the podcast. Right. How, lo- how long were you with him for? Three years. Gosh. And it was like reading this book, Mel, I was like, or, even though, you know, I was 19, I was living with him in like Lewisham, draw what I mean, in like a one bed flat and it was not glamorous. And yeah. And you know, here you are with this kind of pop star life, but I absolutely got it. Mm-hmm. Like I was like there with you, do you know what I mean? And there's a bit when you come, you're you're doing the X Factor and you are showing off your, you know, the ring that you're saying that he's bought for you to Cheryl and the other host and like, isn't he amazing? Well, in actual fact, I bought myself. You bought it for yourself. That really got me there. Because when I remember when I was about, I remember there was this one evening when my mum for my 21st birthday had bought me, it sounds expensive, but it was like a Christian Dior rope necklace and I right. loved it. And I remember coming home and unbeknownst to me my boyfriend at the time had lost his keys and he'd been trying to get hold of me and this was back in the day when mobile phones were like not really existent (laughs) and I got home and I'd bought a couple of bottles of wine back and um he was sitting there on the steps of the flat and he took the bottles of wine and he smashed them and he grabbed me and he ripped the necklace off my throat and then he grabbed me so hard that the next day I had his I had his fingerprints and bruises on my right arm right and then I remember the next morning he got up and he was like I'm so so sorry and he went to went to town to Selfridges and bought me another one of these necklaces and I remember we went out that night and I found myself saying oh my god isn't I'm not going to say his name but isn't so and so so lovely like accidentally last night I broke my necklace and then this morning he went into town to get me a new one oh my god isn't he the best and everyone's looking at me like uh, you've got bruises on your arms. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and so when you said that, I was like, oh my God, I totally, I know this is not a podcast about me, but I just wanted to kind no, of it is. It's good. share that because I felt reading it, I was like, I had these huge flashbacks to yeah. like an experience that was just hideous. And yeah. still, and still now, I don't think, I always think that I have to like, I, I can't say it. I can't say yeah. it. I, found it re- I find it really difficult to talk about. I feel a bit teary now. No, it is difficult. And it's nice. It's good to talk because I think talking is part of the healing process. Mm. And then you realise that you're not alone, that this has happened to somebody else before, probably in, if not the exact way, but exact, the exact tone where mm. you're left then going, oh, no, it's my fault. And I just want to make sure that nobody knows. So you kind of start lying and you become really good at it. And you become like that person that goes, no, nobody knows. Let me just make up a story about the fact that I brought this or that was my fault that that happened because it is my fault and I can't have my world shattering in front of everyone because it's too embarrassing and you mm. feel really 
ashamed and they're really good at making you feel like that and then you're off on your own on your own little lying tangent which all derives from how controlling he is with you and Mm. it becomes constant and they're very good at it Mm. and then you as a vulnerable person and as a nice down-to-earth person just gets taken advantage of and manipulated but that's good that you talked you spoke about that story i know you got the tears in your eyes and i feel your pain too because yeah i've been there and it's hard to talk about it, it is. and it's like well, how do you start to talk about that kind of thing that's why for me doing a book like this yes i have to talk about it but people can also read about it and go back over the chapter mm. and it's one of those things that for me down on paper made it ever so much more truthful mm. because that's my story right there as much as I don't want to look at it sometimes yeah it is but I also think a lot of us especially our generation sorry <laughs> I'm a bit teary um are brought up to believe that like I certainly felt I was brought up to believe like everything was going to be made better by a man really and I know you know and I know that we are you know there's you were the like proponent of girl power and all of that but there was still that sort of like and then I'll have oh and I'll have a family and it'll all be okay and and so it is that really shameful thing when you realize that a relationship can completely destroy you do you yeah. know what I mean and, but and I'm lucky in the fact that just like you're not mm. even lucky lucky is a, a terrible word I'm fortunate that I had the strength to get out and leave most of these women they stay longer than three years longer than 10 years like mine they end up just being in a hamster wheel of just living eating and breathing that abuse on a day in day out basis because they don't realize that they can get out and be somewhat free of it to a certain extent but okay but you say that but it took you you know there was a suicide attempt yeah right and when yeah. i read the book starts with you you can't Taking you pills. made and you you had a suicide attempt when you were 14 as well so this yeah. is taking the pills and then you you go out and then you're in hospital and they're like you've got liver damage kidney damage but you're supposed to be doing the x-factor final yeah i wasn't well i missed one night because i was getting my stomach pumped um and then the following night they said well we still need to do some more blood transfusions and things like that and i felt very safe in hospital because he couldn't get to me and then it dawned on me, you know what? I don't want to be fired from this job. I still have bills to pay. I still have like an image to keep up to a certain extent. So I literally detach myself from all the wires and so you the, pull out the, the drips. Yeah. And I just said, take me there. I'll just do quick hair and makeup. I've got my dress. And I made sure I didn't have my wedding ring on. And that was my FU, my picture. But just, you still went back to him. Because in my mind, I had no choice. I'll tell you why. Because my kids were now in LA with the monster. So if I was to stay in England and try and press charges and admit all this stuff, which I wasn't ready to admit anything, my kids would be taken away from me because I would be seen as mentally unstable. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back to that situation to see my kids, number one, and to somehow pretend all over again that that didn't happen. And it did happen, but it was my fault which it was my fault. Mm. He didn't force me to take the pills. I say it was my fault in the sense that physically I took the pills, but it was based off my emotional abuse that I was being given on a daily basis by him. And I didn't see any other way out apart from, let me just remove myself from the situation. And I made sure I wrote my letter to my mum, begging her and asking her to take care of my kids because I couldn't do it anymore. 
And that's what happens to a lot of women in these situations. It's something ridiculous, like 25 women a day in these abusive relationships try and kill themselves. Two women a week actually do kill themselves. Three women a week get killed by their abuser. And these are statistics that we're dealing with that I'm aware of of what's what's happening I mean, that's, day in, day out. And that is the end point. You know, that's the, we're talking about the suicide and the death. But that's before you even take into account all the other emotional effects. Now, what was really interesting, and I emailed you, like, because I didn't realise, and I, I had never made the link in my head, was that women who are, the, who are victims of domestic violence, who are in co- coercive relationships, are much more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Now... I mean, you are really honest in here that you've taken cocaine and you you lost yourself in booze, Mm -hmm. which I really admire because I don't think enough mums, I don't think enough women talk about this shit. And it's Mm -hmm. real. It's real. I know it. I go to AA, I go to NA and those rooms are full of women like me and you, well, mums who are, you know, have gone through that. And I I realised that my drinking and drugging like ramped up towards the end of my relationship with this person. I never sort of made the connection. Connection. Well, it's a coping mechanism. And often uh, in my situation, I was given the drugs and the booze by my abuser because I'm not going to go out and just buy this and buy that. And that's another form of controlling. So they keep you in like a dazed and confused mental state mm. so they can carry on abusing you. And then they'll, in my situation, that he took pictures and videos, stuff that I can't even remember. And then he would hold that against me. Like, if you walk out that door, if you leave me, last night I pictured you and last night I took a video of you. And I'm like, why would you do that? Like he's been doing that since the first week of our marriage, like 10 years on, why he's still taking pictures and videos for what? That's what I'm saying. It was almost very planned. And these kinds of men, and it does happen the other way around too. Women do this to men too. These kinds of men, they're very good at what they do. Mm. And they're very good at making you and guiding you into a lying to, to the outside world, be making it uh, as though it was all your fault. And you'll just end up in a hamster wheel of all this neglect and abuse and it's not your fault. And it, But this is the thing is that a loving relationship, a person wouldn't film you in that not position to, to then use against you. Not at all. A loving relationship, a person the next morning would be like, darling, are you okay? Because last yeah. night you got, you know what I mean? And yeah. do, you want, do you want me to... Do you want to cuddle? Do you want to hug? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you know what I mean? It wouldn't be like, and here you go. Here's a picture of you doing, you know, it's it's really. But that's how I knew time and time again that, oh my gosh, this is not normal. This is not right. But then, you know, he'd surprise me with a loving dinner that he cooked. So then that, that thought would get swept under the table and, oh, he really loves me today so you just end up trying to piece your life back but you don't even know where to start to piece your life back and then an abuser can see you if see you going off or see you not being so attracted to them or they can feel that you're you're you've got your confidence back a little bit so then they go back into that zone of chipping away at your confidence again or making you like he would like hide my phone and I'd be like where's my phone I know just put it here Oh, it's in, you put it in the fridge. Why did you put it in the fridge? So you feel like you're going absolutely bonkers and you're not. It's just them being able to manipulate and do really radical, weird things and you're constantly trying to just please them. And that's just so, so bad. And it gets into a, a, a thing where you just, you end up so empty and so lost and lonely is not even a word. I mean, there's so many words, other words that I can use, but... 
I'm just glad that I can talk about it because for me, it's, even though it's very difficult and it's a taboo topic and subject, it's very healing for me at the same time. And I know that I'm not alone. And I went to a refuge the other day um, in my hometown, Leeds, and these 12 women had exactly the same story as mine. And my friend even said, was it weird going to a refuge? You know, I was like... No, it felt really comfortable because these women understand me and I understand them. And there was no judging. There was no, for that 10, 15, 20 minutes talking to each woman, it actually ended up being there for three hours. There was no guilt or shame or embarrassment. It's like, oh yeah, well that happened to me too. Mm. And then he did this. And I'm like, oh my God, mine did that to me too. It was like a real coming together of a group Mm. of women that have been through such traumatic stuff. And we were all just like... It's like a sigh of relief. Recognition. Yeah. Because we can all have like the, you know, the circumstances and the finer details can be different. You know, the house, the location, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the level of money involved or whatever. But it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's how it works. Yeah. And it's that kind of stunning, like epiphany. Because I didn't know how people were going to react to this book. I didn't know if anyone was going to believe me, but that was the risk that I took. But so that thing as well, you know, like it's one thing writing a book like this or telling your story. It's another doing it, you know, when you are as famous as, as you are and sort of knowing that there will be people that will make judgments and... How do you protect yourself now from that? Because I also felt when I read this book, if I'm being honest, I felt like I wanted to like jump into the pages, clutch you to my bosom (laughs) and like, just like, I'm like, I know I don't want you to go on tour with this. I do want you to go on tour with the Spice Girls. Of course, everyone wants a (laughs) Spice Girls reunion, but I want to like take you away to a healing retreat and be like, (laughs) I've done that. Okay. But do you know what I mean? Like I, I was like, this feels, it feels, feels so raw and it feels good because it is (laughs) yeah recent but that's that was written like that on purpose because that's exactly how I felt and that's exactly how I feel and that's why when I decided I wanted to do a book I was like well I don't even know who would who would write my story what happens if they get it a little bit wrong or the tone wrong that's why me and Louise because we're good friends anyway you know she came over to LA and lived with me and she saw my life and she saw me going through all these emotional ups and downs and she ended up coming back to the UK, doing a research, finding out about PTSD, finding out what these abused women go through after the fact, or even why these abused women don't talk out because I couldn't talk about it. So she found ways where we'd sit down and have conversations about this stuff. I mean, half of them in the very beginning was, I don't want to talk about it on my end. Mm. But then I did talk about it. And once I started to talk, it was, I'm sure Louise was sitting there in complete shock, horror with some of the stuff I was telling her. But she put it in there and I think we decided together, well, I have to address all those salacious headlines that are out there, half of which have been put by my ex, about the drinking and the drugs and the threesomes and the this and the that. And when you get the statistics of of why a woman then has a coping mechanism of drugs and alcohol, it's because she's being abused and it's because you're in this relationship. And in my situation, like I said before, my abuser would give me all that stuff. And sometimes I would have no choice to not drink and to not do drugs. And it wasn't constantly, every single day. You know, there'd be periods in those 10 years where I'd, this year I'd go sober for three months or six months Mm. and then I would be considered too boring. And sometimes it wasn't worth the physical fight to say, no, I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to do drugs. It was easier just to say yes. 
to save my marriage, which, so I thought. Which is tragic, because on the one hand, he's going, you drink too much, yeah, you're a mess. And then you take it upon yourself to get sober, and he's, you know what I mean? It's like that But that be- is coercive behaviour. Yeah. And don't forget, for me, I was the only one working for 10 years. I'm the only one bringing in the money. I'm the only one providing for my family and my kids and my kids went to private school and you know my kids did aftercare they did gymnastics and piano and you know I have to survive I have to earn money so how in the end talk just talk us through how in the end you found the kind of courage and the bravery to break free after 10 years well when my dad died my dad died March 4th and um I went back to LA after putting his body to rest and making sure that everybody was okay, my mum and my sister and stuff. And he took his last breath looking at me because I'd said to him, can you, you, you're not, there's no comeback, Dad, because what he had, there was ne- he was never going to recover. He was dying and he held on for so many years fighting cancer and battling it and he'd been in and out of comas. So I said, I need to go and divorce this monster. And he took his last breath as if to say, okay, now I can go because I know that you're you're not going to be with him anymore. So I went back to LA and I just, I left and I got a restraining order and I got a separation. And then I never saw him ever again, the monster, apart from in court. And what did you do emotionally to help you? Because I said, I want to take you off to healing retreat. And I've done that. What were the kind of things that you did? Well, I still do the same things. I mean, I became a Reiki master at 19. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much into my meditation. I'm very much into my chakra balancing. And sometimes, you know, you don't have to go into a room and meditate for half an hour. I can meditate on the train. I can meditate five minutes before I go to sleep. I can balance my chakras as I'm talking to you right now. We've got some, there's a load of sticks. Oh, sage, sand, sage, sand, sage sticks that Louise was burning earlier that smell yeah. a bit like, well, they smell, they smell like what uh, exotic cigarettes to me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like clearing the energy. Yeah, it's cleansing. Cleansing. And I've always been into that kind of stuff. I've always been into crystals and meditating and just going within yourself and doing all your chakra healing and balancing. Um, and the funny thing is, is that in my 10-year marriage, my ex never knew that I meditated. He never knew that I was a Reiki master. He never knew I was into any of that stuff. And I guess in a weird way, looking back at that, I, that was probably the one thing that I had just to keep to myself that he wasn't mm. going to take away from me. So you'd go off and do it in a sort of... Well, I, I had a little meditation chair in my closet, because we both, we had, in every house that we've lived in, and we've, we've always had a big master suite separate from all the other bedrooms with our own bathroom. So I'd hide it in my closet, my meditation chair. Because it never came in my closet. I mean, you're literally hiding in your wardrobe to kind of get away from him. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I wish to touch on is that, you know, a lot of these relationships they thrive thrive doesn't feel like the right word because thriving to me is like you know positive Positive, and it's like life but they very much isolate you yeah from friends and family and that's one of the major things so even if you wanted to leave you haven't probably spoken to your mum in a few weeks or in my case a few years most of your friends have been ex from your life because mm. that's what the abuser does. He makes it very difficult for you to have outside contact. Mm. So you're living in like a, a prison that you're then led to believe, well, you created this. Well, of course that person's not going to take your call because you're a bad person. They're very good at making all that happen. And that's classic abusive behaviour when an abuser does that to you. That's almost mandatory that they make sure that you don't have contact with your friends and your family, which you would normally have. Because he called your mum. 
Yeah, he called my mum a lot of times abusing her verbally. Yeah. And that was really interesting to me that both my mum and my daughter, who's now 19, wanted to do their own chapter in my book. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, it's very clear that this is not, it is your story, but it's a lot of people's stories. Yeah. And they also did their own, they did recorded their own audible, which must have been really difficult for Phoenix because, you know, she was, uh, she was 10 when I married Stefan, Steve him and now she's 19 and I said to her you know you don't have to do this she said no I have to tell my story because it didn't just affect you it affected me and she said and I want whoever is going to read this book to know that their children are affected or maybe there's one of the children that are going to end up reading this book and go okay well that did happen to my mum and that was wrong and I don't ever want my mum to go through that I don't want ever myself to go through that or any of my friends and the whole point of this book is it becomes a talking topic and subject which we we don't usually talk about because it is too dark and it is too weird and a bit depressing well a lot depressing but I think if we don't talk about it and if we don't have books out there like this that are honest and truthful and then we're living a lie again all over again which Mm. is what I've done for 10 years live live a complete lie and most of these women do live that lie and then if not then they have to go into hiding in a refuge and live in complete fear which I still live in panic and fear and how do you deal with that now well I have a stay away order so you can't come near me Mm -hmm. but I mean you know I you can't he can't you know this sadly stay away orders can't like stop the kind of feelings but you're looking forward positivity no I think this is positive to talk about it but then it's like that part of my life has ended but I'm still going to be healing and recovering from that and you know when one thing ends in a bad way something I'd like to think always happens in a positive way so I've been saying for the last god five ten years I want to get the Spice Girls back together and it's happening now and it's, that's going to be a lot of fun that I've got to enjoy next year. And you just showed me some of the tour plans. And yeah. I'm very excited. And you said I could come. Yeah, I did. No, you it's can. On, of it's course on, you can. It's on record. No, for sure. Because <laughs> we all have our... Per- Even though it's sold out, which is amazing. Uh, is I love like that you were telling me that you was, you guys were scared that it wasn't going to sell out. That people yeah. weren't going to buy tickets. Yeah, I mean, I have a big ego. So I part of me was like, yes, of course it's going to sell. But then it was like, oh, but what if it doesn't sell out completely? What if this but sort of empty or performing to kind of half empty? Right? <laughs> then we'd have to get like, all our friends and family and everybody else's friends. <laughs> but I mean, that to us, that was a real like, wow, thank you. We do have really amazing, supportive fans. Not that I thought that we, our fans weren't amazing and supportive, but that is living proof that, yeah, the fans are still there and we've got sold out shows and it's going to be amazing. And I'm, if the Spice Girls would have gotten to get back together like when I was in my abusive relationship, I would not have been able to enjoy any of it and I would be trapped with the doom and gloom of having to still lie again. So it's very freeing. And the key is, is that they didn't get back. You didn't get back together while you were in your abusive relationship. Oh, which, thank God. Which the universe wants, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it shows you that good things happen when you get out of this shit, yeah. this poisonous shit. And I'm one of the fortunate ones that got out alive and of course I'm scarred still, physically and emotionally, but I'm... I'm on the road to recovery. I'm so pleased. Well, Aww. thank you so much. I want to give you a big well, thank hug. You. Thank Bizarre you. Bosom hugs. Yes. Um, that it's was so amazing. Lovely. <laughs> oh, can we do clapping? Oh, yeah. Way. <laughs> I think everyone, I, I, I feel like everyone should just clap themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Thank 
If you or someone you know are affected by any of the issues we spoke about in this episode, please, please contact Women's Aid. They're an amazing organisation who can help in a whole range of ways, from friendly advice over the phone to hands-on support services. We put their website and phone number in the show notes. Meanwhile, if you want to hear the rest of the series, search for If I Can Do It anywhere you get podcasts and click subscribe. We'll be putting new episodes up every Friday for the next five weeks. We've got inspirational stories from an Oscar-winning filmmaker, a feminist icon in the making, and one of my all-time favourite Hollywood actors, to name but a few. And our next guest is the amazing, heroic actor, presenter and campaigner, Adam Pearson, who talked to me about what it's like when the world can't see past your appearance and how he got through it. I, I say it, it's OK not to be OK. You know, if you look at that photo of kind of Nicki Minaj, Rihanna, Cheryl Cole, whoever it is, and think, yeah, that's how I want to look, they don't even look like that. To hear the rest of that conversation with Adam when it lands, search If I Can Do It in your favourite podcast app or look in the show notes for this episode where we've put links to the show. <laughs>